Hello, and welcome to Dirt NC. I'm Jed Byrne. Dirt NC is all about the places and spaces of North Carolina and the people who make them awesome. Today, I'm joined by Chris Alexander. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Jed. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thanks for thanks for making the time. Uh, as always, as we get started, if you could, you know, for folks who don't know you and, and maybe don't know a whole lot about marbles and what you're working on, could you give kind of the 30, 60 second overview elevator pitch on, on who you are and what you're working on these days? Well, uh, my name is Chris Alexander. I'm the vice president of exhibits at Marbles Kids Museum. Uh, I've been with Marbles since the beginning, and even before that, when it was a previous uh, museum called Explorers. And what we do is we uh, create experiences uh, that spark imagination, discovery, and learning through play for families in Wake County and all over North Carolina. Awesome, awesome, and and again, full disclosure, we talked a bit before the before the recording started, but you and I first met when I joined the facilities committee for Marbles, and that was probably four or five years ago. And then now, um, I've been asked to sit on the board, so we get to see each other quite regularly. And and the reason I wanted to do have this interview is my hope again, selfishly, is that lots of people who are listening have been to Marbles and know about Marbles. For those who don't, they'll learn some more. But even for those who have been to Marbles, I will never forget the day that you gave us the tour and I, we got kind of behind the scenes and got to go into your shop and got to kind of see where all the action takes place behind the scenes. And it just blew me away of what you and your team work on and all the different aspects and all the different things you're building. And like there's this whole second layer to what's going on in marbles um that you have you have direct impact on and it was very impressive so again that that's kind of what i hope to be digging into here amongst other things and so with that um when when did you join the kind of year wise when did you join explorer so how long have you been with the museum i've been working in this building for 26 years now so i started uh with explorers when it was still just an idea. Uh, we were working out of a house behind Chargrill over on Willard Street. Um, at that point, I think it was still called Children's Museum about the world. Um, but I, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to come help her scan some images for a new museum that they were building. And I said, sure. Went over there. Next thing I knew, I'm, I'm working for the outfit and a couple of years later we opened uh in a brand new building uh downtown which was uh then called explorers and it's it's amazing how you know sometimes a little request can bloom into something uh quite substantial over time that's right and you mentioned uh that you know you were kind of blown away by what was back at house at at at, at marbles um it's one of the things that people don't um, maybe not realize that most of our exhibits are um, built in-house. Um, yeah. We have um, the luxury of having a, a 2,000 square foot shop. Uh, it's full wood shop, some metal paint. Um, we have CNC routers, uh, 3D printers, laser cutters, um, and the capabilities to design uh, from you know CAD, CAM, process, and all the way through fabrication. So a lot of uh, what the kids and families are playing with out there was um, made in-house. Um, we all 
we consider everything we do like a working prototype. So we like to see how they're interacted with and go back and, and tweak and change and really uh, customize the exhibits over time. Well, and I would imagine, um, and again, yeah, that that's exactly it. I mean, that's the piece that just blew me away. And I would have to imagine that that gives marbles, uh, not to make it, you know, it, it's play, right? So it's supposed to be fun, not not to go too businessy, but like that's got to give the museum a strategic advantage to, like you said, if if you're buying exhibits or 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 toys or interactive pieces off off the shelf or from an outside vendor, and then there, there's surely some of that, you know. If if it if there needs to be some tweaking or there's a feedback loop from the kids in the museum, are you getting a piece of feedback? It'd be so much cooler if this happened or or this isn't working the way. Like you kind of lose some of that flexibility, but because you're producing it, you put it out there, right? As the, as this working prototype, you then get to get collect the feedback, which I know the team does a lot of, and react to it. And so it's this iterative process that, um, and again, having kids that that grew up going to marbles, it it's. I don't know, I'm biased, but it's it's like my favorite place in the world. And I think a big piece of that is because the team has the ability to respond so well to the kids and what they uh, want in a museum. And also it gives you guys the ability to just like brainstorm and come up with all these wacky, crazy ideas and then just go do it. Like it's, it's amazing. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Uh, we, we pride ourselves on, on creating really unique experiences. Um, they're lots of children's museums and many great ones here in North Carolina and all over the country. Um, but we, we like to think that what we've created here in Raleigh is, uh, is very unique. Um, and we're kind of seen as one of the you know leaders in the industry um, through uh, the Association of Children's Museums. A lot of folks come to us asking us questions of how we've done this or did that. Um, so um, we take a lot of pride in, in, in having uh, you know, a unique experience for, for kids and families here in Raleigh. Yeah, as you should, and, and one that, that changes, and we'll talk about change in a little bit. But if we could take a step back, you mentioned, you know, I had not heard the story about how you first got started, but before before that, when did you, I don't know if you consider yourself a maker, I got to imagine you do, but like when when did when did making things and creating things, when did that all start for you? Oh, uh, er, early on, I think, you know, I, I think I was lucky in that um, I kind of knew what I wanted to do at a very early age. Uh, uh, my parents like to tell me, like, when other kids wanted to be firemen and, um, yeah, policemen or, or doctors or something, I always wanted to be a toy maker. Really? I love getting toys, and I, and I like making them. They thought I was going to be an elf. Um <laughs> But I had a creative streak in me. Uh, I like taking things apart as a kid. Um, and then uh, I had an uncle who was a professor at uh, the what was the school design, now the college design at NC State. Uh, and he really got me interested in the idea of uh, being a designer. Uh, I applied to uh, a school design and got in. And um, for the best years of my life, four and a half years, I think I took an extra semester. Um, but yeah, that's where I really, uh, honed my, my creative, um, and design skills, you know, learning about color and light pattern, um, symmetry. And, and then, uh, from there, um, just kind of went out in the world. Um, 
Did you grow up in Raleigh? I did not. I grew up in Greensboro, but okay. uh, I moved here in 1989, and um, I loved it, uh, and have been here ever since, really. And that, so then you were at school, and and I would imagine, um, again, I I did not grow up in North Carolina, and so um, NC State is is new to my world, or newish, newer to my world. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's amazing to hear all the connection points of, of the creative universe locally that goes back to college of design. I mean, it, it, it pops up oh, yeah. all over the place. I mean, you just, you, you see that on, on resumes and descriptions and bios of people in all sorts of, and it's not just a, a certain type of creative. It's, it's lots of various creative endeavors. Um, and so that, that's a huge asset to our community, but you went, oh, I think so. You went knowing that you were going to go, you know, you wanted to be a toy maker, and then you said you kind of went out in the world. Um, what what were you doing, maybe in school uh, or as you came out of school professionally? Well, yeah, uh, when you st- back then when you started uh, in the in the school or in the design school, you would um, you didn't declare a major. Uh, I think it might be different now, um, but you had a full year of fundamentals where you got mm. to explore architecture graphic design, um, what it's called, what's called product design is now industrial design. Um, so you got to dabble in each of those. And I was really drawn to uh, industrial design. Um, and we, we took classes on ideation, sketching, model making, uh, had some great professors there, uh, Vince Foote, Wayne Taylor, um, who really kind of took me under their wing and we did furniture um, projects. Uh, I think he even talked one of them into letting us um, renovate a, a 1972 school bus into a van, uh, you know, some kind of RV. Um, got class uh, credit for that. Um, but about halfway through, I, I started uh, really getting into metalwork. Um, and at the time, there was um, a woman whose name's uh, Marianne Shear. Uh, she's a uh, world-renowned goldsmith who was actually living here in Raleigh because her her kids had moved down here. Um, and I started begging her for uh, an apprenticeship. Um, and sooner or later, I think I just wore her down, and she she took me on as an apprentice, and I started working with her, uh, doing goldsmithing, uh, making jewelry, um, small sculptures and whatnot um and then after after i graduated uh, a group of us about eight folks that i had to come close with in school we uh decided we wanted to continue this this studio type atmosphere collaborative um environment outside of school so we we found uh an abandoned warehouse over on Kinsey Street, uh, down in Boylan Heights. And it was, uh, we had to track down the owner. Uh, this is before the internet. So <laughs> I think it was going down to uh, the real estate uh, department or probably tracking down the name and then calling them up and begging them to let us rent it because it was literally abandoned at the point, um, which now uh, is. We started the Ant Farm Collective, which is an artist uh, studio collective that's still going today down there in Boylan Heights. 
So the building, is it the same location? Same location. Um, it was actually, previously, it was the Carolina Washboard Factory um, back in the day. It's, uh, I believe it's owned by uh, Tommy Fondle. Um, he was the one that rented it to us back in the day, and he he thought, it's like, what do you guys have use for this building? It's just, it's an abandoned uh, washboard factory. Um, and we said, hey, we're going to we're gonna clean it up and put it to good use. And we created a bunch of studios in there and uh, we had painters and sculptors, ceramicists, blacksmith, um, and I was making jewelry. Very cool. Um, so as someone who's, who's uh, enamored with old buildings, to say the least, I, I got to ask, what, what do you, I mean, you mentioned one hurdle, right, is finding who owns the space. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what do you think, what do you think made, either made that space work or like, what, what do you think it, it took for you guys to, to solve that problem, right? You had a need, you wanted space, you, you saw maybe an opportunity in the old building, but like, how did you guys, how did you, how did you put it all together? How did you make that work? Well, I think it was uh, just, we didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know we probably weren't supposed to do this. And back then in the early nineties, there was probably a plethora of old buildings <laughs> downtown that we could have had. Um, this was one that uh, we found and just had a, it just had a, a, a certain vibe to it. It was by the train tracks. Um, it had great views of downtown, uh, these old leaded windows, and um, it was just kind of perfect for what our needs were, um, especially since it was, um, I think we got it for a song. Yeah. Um, both, both Tommy and his wife were big supporters of the arts, and once they heard what we wanted to do, I think they took pity on us and, uh, <laughs> and uh, gave us a good deal. Um, but um, it, it worked out well, uh, and it's still it's still down there. You can see it from the Boylan Bridge, um, right there to the right. I think uh, eventually Rebus Works um, moved in um, in the building above that on Kinsey Street, and there it's another great spot. Um, local artists and uh, and such over there. And and what do you think? Um... I mean, what's for for maybe someone's listening and wants to have a space or a project like that? What do, what do you think the um, I don't know if minimum viable viable project is the right word, but like, what do you th- what do you think is the um, yeah? What do you, what do you think are the minimum requirements if if someone's looking to get into that, or maybe maybe somebody has an old building? I mean, like, what what do you think it are kind of the core pieces from a from a creative standpoint of making something like that work? Wow. Uh, I think it might be different today. And, you know, to be honest, there there are some examples of that um, with, uh, have you heard of Anchorlight uh, Studios? Yeah. Yeah, they're, um, and this is, you know, in the same vein on with, with more uh, resources behind it. Um, but I think what they've done over there is truly amazing and kind of an incubator for um, emerging and established artists uh, and craftsmen. Um, so I think that that model has shown that you know the the, the um, demand is there um, for creative spaces and, and places for creatives to work. Um, 
and it seems to be thriving and working. And what about what about when you when you mentioned goldsmithing? Um, I, I don't know much about the craft of goldsmithing, but like what what do you, what do you need to what do you need to do that? Like what what are, what are the what do you, what do you need to to start goldsmithing? And then also, I just kind of have a, a question about like. Where where does one get gold for goldsmith? Like, do you go? Is there like a gold store that you go buy your raw material? Like, how does that even happen? Well, goldsmithing, you can work in in any any metal. Goldsmithing generally refers to the uh, uh, working on on small objects like jewelry pieces. Ah, okay. uh, and then silversmithing would be more uh, working on. Uh, Larger objects like uh, serving platters, um, tea sets. Uh, so it it's it's a little misnomer. People think if you're a silversmith, you only work with silver. Ah. If you're a goldsmith, you only work with gold. But it it's more has to do with the scale of the objects uh, that you're working on. Um, but yeah, you can uh, you can actually order gold through the mail, uh, and that's how we used to do it. You can still do it that way. You, you order it in bars and sheets and pellets, uh, however, however much you need, and it, it fluctuates on, on the price of gold that day. Um, there are a few places uh, that you can order from. Is, is there like a special yeah. insurance? Like, I mean, it can't, maybe it does just come through like Amazon, but like, is there, is there other like logistical concerns you have shipping gold back you just, and forth? You, you just make sure that you, you trust your mailman. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate the the uh, woman that I worked for she had uh, she'd been working in the industry and she's I could do a whole podcast on on her she she led one of these uh, more scumpian lives um, but she had uh, a tremendous stock of of, of gold and, and and silver pieces from her time um, she worked at Kent State she was the head of the metals department at Parsons and in new york and um she was actually uh she was there uh when uh the national guard in kent state and they turned on the students and wow. went out and performed first aid uh to some of the students that were shot and, wow. That's crazy. Uh, she had uh, it was um but she's done she had done um rings for uh the duke of windsor uh at one point she had multiple pieces in the National Gallery um, and been on the Today Show for her body metric uh, jewelry where she would she had created uh, jewelry pieces that would like read your heartbeat. This is back in the 70s before there was Apple watches or yeah. anything like that. Before everyone um, was hooked up. Yeah, she had custom uh, chokers that were tracheotomy covers. Uh, for people who had tracheotomies and then all this really interesting work um, in her life. That's fascinating. But um, and she had she had moved down to Raleigh and um, she has a, a strong following here. Um, many many folks uh, fans of her at the Greg. She had a retrospective there um, at the Greg Museum uh, over at NC State and had taught for many years at, at both Duke and um, Meredith College. Um, as well as Penland, and and so when that's I did not know on well did not know a lot about the stuff that you mentioned, but the the goldsmithing and silversmithing scale piece was something I had not thought of. But it, it sounds like not only did you go from 
small scale and, and, you know, fine metals and materials, you, you've scaled up substantially, but what, what was that transition? And you, you brought up, brought up a little bit, what was that transition from kind of the small scale to the larger scale work you're doing at marbles? And then also secondary, or just kind of in addition to that, what do you think are, are the skills that carried over and what were some of the new skills you had to acquire, if any? That's great. Great question. Um, like I said, after um, uh, I'm trying to think, I was working as a goldsmith for a number of years, and then it was a it was about the time '96 or so where I kind of realized that um, I didn't have uh, the salesman in me to be uh, a professional goldsmith. You really have to hit hit the craft fairs and um, you know be willing to put yourself out there and, and be a salesman. And I, I, I enjoyed the making part, but not the, the marketing part. So hold um, on. can we, can we put a pin then in, uh, yeah. cause sales is a topic of huge interest to me and I, and I, I don't know that we'll be able to loop back to this. So we'll put a pin in the transition and in the skill differential, but what is it about sales that you think was the challenge or what, you said you didn't you didn't have the, the well i was i was having you. to market myself as someone unique and special and i don't think of myself like that <laughs> um i think you you have to have a, a certain personality to kind of um to be able to like say hey you know what i'm doing is important and and you need to invest in it yeah um and uh i think i just didn't my my ego wouldn't let me embrace that. Um, so I, I, at that point, I was like, um, I needed more skills because when I had graduated uh, in the early 90s, the computers were not a thing yet. I yeah. think I didn't even have an email address um, when I was in school the first time. And at that time, um, some of the design software uh, was taking over and I was like, I need to... I need to get uh, some kind of some training on this. So I decided to go back to graduate school at NC State um, and get some um, computer and software um, experience. And I was there for like two weeks. And one of my professors saw me on campus and said, well, what are you doing here? I was very excited to tell him, hey, I'm, I'm back. I'm going to get my master's in industrial design. And you know, get some computer experience that I didn't get the first time. And he just kind of gave me a quizzical look and he says, you're, you're not going to learn anything here that you didn't learn the first time. I don't want to, I don't want to see you here next semester. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just kind of said, well, took it to heart. And I, I, I just threw myself into the computers that one semester and, it was that summer that I got a call from a friend saying that uh, they needed help scanning images and um, started with Explorers. And, you know, for the first uh, seven years there, I kind of got, uh, I really got into the, the technical side of things and became a, a network administrator, really working on the, the digital infrastructure of the building and doing IT work. Yeah. Um, huh. I wasn't working uh, in in the shop or on the exhibits because um, when we opened as Explorers, everything was done out of house, and um, 
kind of was one of the issues with the, the first go around of the museum is that nothing changed. Uh, we had the same exhibits uh, on day one as we did the day that um, Explore ceased to uh, exist. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, and it was uh, really at that point, that last year uh, as Explorers that um, the shop manager's position uh, became open and one of the vice presidents was like, hey, you have a design background. Would you be interested? At that point, I was uh, I was over the IT stuff and I said, yeah, I'll I'll jump in the shop and, and take over. And that's when we, we really started uh, changing things, uh, how, we, how we created exhibits. So, so were you in those seven years, how, how much creation were you still, I mean, outside of, outside of the, the networking piece, were you still, you know, metalsmithing on your own? Were you still building things on your own or was that just on the shelf for a bit? It was. It, w- it was on the shelf for a bit. Um, I did. I kept my, my bench and I would do things here and there. But, um, I, you know, at the time I was trying to throw myself into this new career of, uh, of IT work. And yeah. I was learning. I was coding. Um, and there's a there's a certain um, amount of like design and coding, which I, I, I've always appreciated, like uh, the simplicity and how things, uh, you know, can be uh, efficient and, and you know, working with databases and, and that sort of thing. There's there's definitely a design element. Yeah, a lot well. of creativity. So mm-hmm. so with the benefit of hindsight, that professor uh, who shall remain nameless, do, do you think that that was the appropriate response for a for a younger Chris Alexander or or? Oh, it was it was the best uh, advice anyone's ever given me because I, <laughs> you know, he was right. You yeah. know, I was going to be working with the same professors that I worked with before. Um, really, the only uh, added value I was getting were these uh, trainings and, and access to the computer programs that I didn't get the first time and. You know, four months on on Photoshop and Illustrator is really all you need to to learn the basics, and then it's just about doing it and well, and learning on your own. That that was one of I didn't want to lead the the witness too much, but I kind of thought my hunch would have been that that was correct. And one of the things that I think is so powerful about the world that we live in today and technology today is that if you know what questions to ask, you know the answers are all there, and if you are interested in learning about you know photoshop you know photoshop isn't free but there are there are photo editing tools that are free or or much less expensive than they used to be and so i I do think you know big i i'm i love learning and and trying to be creative when i can and i I think the big trick there is is you just kind of got to get into it and if you get into it my sense is you can learn as you go and you but you 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 got to start by doing um so yeah, I, I would have guessed that, that that's fair, um, fair advice. But it's uh, it's always good to ask, and it's it's just, it just amazes me if you know the question. And I think about this from from a real estate perspective. I, I give this advice to people all the time. Is like if you start participating in conversations about development or or placemaking or the built environment or urbanism or whatever, 
eventually you'll you'll hear something that you don't know and if you just kind of lean into that curiosity you can find the answer but i do think there's something to be said for for school and education and community of of all types that that's the best place to learn what you don't know right so if i were to if i were to sit down with you at the bench you know to learn about metal smithing you know i would walk away i would just be flabbergasted by how much i don't know but i that's how the process of learning starts like you have to have some sort of jump off point to learn what you don't know and once you know what you don't know you can lean into it and learn um so anyway, i would, I would exactly. guess that that was true i will say though uh, to, to before i leave completely from sales i do think you know you said you, you'd have to sell yourself and that you'd have to have um think of yourself as unique and special and then again i'm not trying to convince you to to get into sales or to think about yourself mm-hmm. differently than you are. But I think part of that challenge, one, I, I believe you probably were doing unique and special work. So there's that. I, I think maybe you weren't thinking oh, I'm, about I'm sure. You know, I think, you know, also is we all suffer from imposter oh, yeah. syndrome from right. time to time. And I'm sure there was a, a fair bit of that going on as well. You know, the older I get, the more confident I am and what I've, what I'm doing, what I've done. So, yeah, um, hopefully I've overcome some of that. Well, and the and the flip side to that advice too is one, it probably already exists, and two, if if you if you believe that you are not doing something unique and special, part of the answer might just be leaning more into that. I mean, you you mentioned, um, you know, your mentor uh, was it Marianne? Marianne Shear. Yes. Marianne Shear. You know, she was doing what was it? Tracheotomy cover chokers, right? Like. Yeah. No matter no matter how skillful she was at that, I I'd be willing to bet there aren't a thousand artists doing that type of work, right? And so I know. Yeah. So if if she you, was groundbreaking in right. a lot of ways, yeah. if if you feel like you're not unique and special enough, maybe you just got to lean into doing something a little bit more unique and different. Uh, and that's general advice for people. That's not directed at you, but in general. Um, well, very cool. So okay, so now you you've gotten to marbles. You've gotten, or I guess it was explorers at the time. Now you're in the shop. Um, how did, how did those kind of first exhibits differ from what you're working on now? And maybe, maybe kind of a a point to bring in what's, what's going on or what are you working on at Marvel's these days? Yeah, our first, uh, attempts at creating our own exhibits were, um, they were ambitious and, uh, you know, I still think fondly of them, but there was looking back, there's so much we, we didn't know, um, and I think at the time it was before we'd even uh, kind of transitioned to marbles. We were, you know, we knew internally that um, the target audience that that Explorers was going for wasn't the target audience that was wanting to come to marbles. It was really geared towards an older set of children, you know, uh, 10, 10 to 13, 14, this middle school age mm-hmm. uh, kids. But the ones that came and actually enjoyed themselves were the, you know, three to six year olds. Um, so we started making a few uh, custom exhibits uh, that were geared towards the younger set, and we we had some success there. But um, it really wasn't until um, there was a, a leadership change and and the smerging of uh, Explorers and with another um, uh, space called Play Space, which was a, a smaller children's museum uh, that was over on Glenwood Avenue. Um, and uh, that's when Sally Edwards, um, our kind of founding 
uh, our founder of Marvels uh, and, and first CEO came in and she just lit a fire under everyone about what we could become. Yeah. Um, and we did a, a one of these amazing transformations in like 20 days where we closed down as Explorers and 20 days later we reopened uh, as Marvels. And it was, you know, that was when I really learned about the power of, of community because she had so many connections throughout the community, whether it was developers or, or construction um, companies, um, architects, everyone just kind of came in uh, and helped us transform uh, this museum uh, from what it was into uh, the first uh, rendition of Marbles, um, let's say Marbles 1.0. Uh, and it was uh, it was truly amazing. I think the first day we opened, we had ten thousand people come through the doors. Wow, that's we crazy. We hadn't seen those kind of numbers in you know four months combined previously. Yeah, that's amazing. So so now, if if that was Marbles one point where are we now? Marbles two point oh, three point oh, four point two. Oh yeah. I- yeah, I think we're. Uh, it, it might even be seventeen point zero because it feels like every year we're we're redefining, uh, you know, what we can do. Yeah, um, we have our super talented staff. Uh, yeah, share share a little bit more uh, about we, the team if you could. Oh uh, yeah, we have uh, a a lot of uh, folks we've hired from the uh, co- the College of Design. We also have. Uh, Jeff Highsmith, who's our director of exhibits, is um, he's a wizard. He um, knows everything from uh, you know all the trades to uh, Arduino programming, um, interactives, electrical. Uh, he's a sound engineer. He can do anything. So he's really created uh, or expanded our ability to to go next level with some of our exhibits. Um, in surprising ways so he was a, can be architect behind our um, musical stairwell or yeah. piano staircase uh, as well as some other other bits but uh yeah and we've also uh we've had a, a leadership change jonathan frederick has mm-hmm. stepped in uh in the last couple of years and really energized re-energized the, the staff to uh to think big um so we're currently uh just kicked off uh, a capital campaign for expanding our our building footprint here um, which is very exciting yeah that's um yeah so that again that's i've gotten involved in, in some of the tail end of these these conversations in the last few years and again uh, i think one area that maybe maybe folks don't know maybe they do but marbles is a is a in partnership with wake county because they're they're our landlord downtown Mm -hmm. and so right but there is there is a lot i think changing and a lot of um a lot on let's just say coming down the pipe so so what exactly does the the capital campaign mean to marbles and and what are some of the things that um when you say expanding the footprint that that might entail well you know it's uh our vision is to create like a new play-based uh exhibits that um in this new space you know with experience that is that um, visitors can uh, come in and have a, more space um, and that some that marbles can open our doors to, to more folks um, in the community. Uh, we're looking at building a, a two-story addition uh, featuring you know 
a new iconic indoor space as well as a, a outdoor patio space overlooking Blunt Street. So um, we're we're excited about uh, the new exhibit. Uh, it's going to be based on careers and, and the trades of the future. It's something that's very important, um, you know, for North Carolina and uh, our our economy. Um, the trades are, you know, there's there's so much focus on, um, you know, IT and, and tech, um, but there's there's a lot of things through biotech, uh, manufacturing, um, and the skilled trades that uh, are going to be needed in the next century. Yeah, I mean, I, I was literally having um, a conversation this morning, unsolicited and unrelated to marbles, but about. Uh, Again, just the need for different skill sets and trades within the community, and I do. I, I think uh, Marbles does a fantastic job and continues, and will will continue to be an integral part of starting that journey for a lot of kids. Because again, when when they come in, and you know, if you didn't have access to uh, certain professions or skills or creativity or you know a workbench right having the ability to look at tools yeah. and see tools and then spark that interest for a lifelong of, of learning about tools and building things you know um not not everybody came out wanting to be a toy maker but you know i would be willing to bet that there's no better place in again i'm biased but i would say north carolina to to have that idea be sparked in the in the mind of a child than marble so I, th- I think it's it's incredibly important work and right i'm excited to see i'm excited to see where things uh i'm excited to see, have seen where things have gone thus far and i'm excited to see where things will go in the future when um when we talk about new exhibits kind of high level and may- maybe this is maybe this is hypothetical but for you and your team wh- when you're thinking about a new exhibit what what is like where does the process start, and and what does that, um, you know, what does the process look like from how you go from okay, well, hey, if we just said, hey, Chris, there's, you know, here's here's a new space, uh, we're gonna come up with a new exhibit. What what does that process look like for you guys, and then how do you go from uh, A to Z? How do you go from beginning to, yeah. and maybe not, maybe there's no end, right, because it's a iterative process. But how do you go from uh, blank space to delivery of of the first version? Well, it you know it can start off in in many different ways. Um, this particular project um, was uh, kicked off by kind of seeing a need and working with the, the community on like the idea that um, you know there are, there are there's this need to um, expose kids to different uh, trades and and opportunities within uh, those careers, but for us, it, it starts with a, a play plan. We we literally get together and um, say what is going to be the informal play based learning that we want to um, to have in this space. Um, we'll we'll talk about different uh, types of um, concepts that we want to explore. Um, what the kids will be doing, how the families will be interacting. A lot of our play is, is it's kind of role um, uh, role play, um, which includes costuming and props. Um, we have a lot of loose parts play in our building, so we want to create a space that the the kids feel like is theirs. Yeah, it goes everything from the scale to the um, the color um, and the reference points that they see in there. Um, so. It's not a lot of going in, pressing a button, 
and learning about something on a screen. We don't do a lot of screens unless it really um, enhances the play. And so it's more role play. It's not them sitting there reading something or seeing a video on the screen. Um, but once we have a kind of a fleshed out play plan, when we uh, internally will start working on, on conceptual design, which is uh, sketching. Um, and then for a project this big, we will work with, uh, you know, an outside uh, designer that we've worked with in the past. Um, because even uh, this is going to be close to 3,200 square feet. Um, uh, our shop is, is, is you know, big compared to others, but even for us, it, this is too much to, to take on internally. We'll do some of it, but we'll, um, we'll work with other local fabricators and national fabricators to, to create this next exhibit. And then, so it goes through design, construction, delivery. How, how does the museum or how do you and your team um, collect feedback for kind of future iterations and, and adaptation of the space? um well we'll do that through a few ways we take uh customer feedback uh, we have comment cards um we do we send out surveys um just up front asking people have you experienced this this exhibit um what did you think about it um how could it be better and then we do uh uh internally we have what we called leap that's uh, uh i think it stands for uh learning engagement assessment program where we'll go through internally and um, evaluate each of our exhibits uh, for uh, condition or playability or um, you know safety all the time. So every every month there's a new exhibit that we're going through and just refocusing on saying how is this working now? Um, you know, two years down the road. Yeah. And if there are certain um, aspects of it that are uh, underwhelming or underutilized, we'll we'll go back to the drawing board on that and, and redesign it. So it really is an iterative process um, with all of our exhibits. And the the one thing again, I think because I've had the the privilege of seeing back of house, one thing I certainly never thought about from a from a from a I guess a user from a guest of Marvel's perspective, is like the cool thing is if you work at Marvel's, you know your offices are in the museum, and so you're constantly, you know, I know Jonathan talks about this all the time. Like you can hear, you can hear what's going on on the other side of the wall, right? You can hear kids playing. You can hear what's working well. You can hear what's maybe not working so well. Or, or there's been countless examples of like kids using, using, uh, and you had a word for it, um, not interactive play, but like picking up the thing, like using things in ways that nobody really necessarily would have thought that they oh, use yeah. them. But it's like it works, and then you say, "Great, okay, well now that you know, now that they're using the the logs to to make a raft to go down the slide, let's 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 make some more logs and let's add some more logs." How can we? Yeah, working. how can we lean into that? Yeah, yeah, we we learn so much from just observation. Yeah, how um, folks are interacting with our exhibits um, in surprising ways sometimes, like you said. Um, but it's always, um, it, it's really what makes this job so fulfilling is, uh, we get to live with what we create um, yeah. every day and, and be able to respond to that so quickly. Um, it's, it's just super fulfilling. Yeah. Well, and, and you guys have the skills to back it up so you can, you can go from idea to, uh, to reality very well which which is cool again from an outsider to see um and just knowing what you guys have done 
So we've talked uh, about kind of background history. We talked about marbles today in the capital campaign. And I'll, I'll make sure to include links for more information. Uh, you know, folks want to get involved with that. I'm sure. I'm sure the team won't turn that down. Um, but what about what about future? I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about the future of marbles and the museum. What about you know from from your um, background of, of, of being in the community and being part of the community, the creative community specifically in Raleigh over the years, what, what do you see as, as maybe where that creative community is headed or, or, or maybe, maybe it's where the creative community is headed or, or where Raleigh is headed and how that interacts with the creative community or how the creative community interacts with Raleigh of the future. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm very excited about Raleigh's future, especially, you know, the, you know, the core downtown area, which where I live and work and uh, have been educated. Um, so I, I think that there's, you know, so much um, going on downtown. Um, if you look back 30 years ago, it was, it was really a sleepy little uh, city downtown. You would, you would come down here at night and, you could literally walk down the middle of Wilmington Street uh, and not worry about getting run over because no one, no one was down here. Yeah. Um, but now it's vibrant. Um, you know, I think it's still coming back uh, since the pandemic. But um, I'm, I'm very high on what's, um, what's going on downtown um, and within the, the core of Raleigh. Uh, I think the creative class has a big role to play. I think it can be um, a great asset to uh, to any city, um, whether through the arts or are just um, yeah, creating economic opportunities uh, with, with like making a vibrant space more vibrant. So, so that's I mean, again, you you brought it in early on when when you were talking about finding this, you know, abandoned finding i mean it was there all along but but um mm-hmm. identifying an abandoned washboard factory you know and, and right I, I wasn't in raleigh 30 years ago but my sense is those opportunities are, are fewer and far between and and you know yeah. you can't walk down wilmington street <laughs> without risk of getting uh having an interaction with a car let's say but um you know so so that's from from one angle that's a plus right there's there's more activity there's more vibrancy there's more people there's more interest um which i think brings a lot of of opportunity right and from from mm-hmm. uh, an artist or a creative class person right if if you were doing uh unique work 30 years ago you know your 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 customer base or your community or your network has grown and that that's a good thing i think the the challenge at least i've seen it from a from a spaces and places perspective is right while you don't want abandoned buildings uh I, I don't know that that's a net positive the opportunity that that presents could be a net positive right because if, if that washboard factory mm-hmm. was occupied you might not have been able to to do what you did so where do you think is are areas that um maybe we as a community need to make sure to keep an eye on that that we don't lose um you'd mentioned it in our in our pre-call you know this idea of the soul of the community but what are, what are some areas that mm-hmm. we need to just 
you know, I, I'm optimistic, right? I'm, you're, you're never going to catch me being pessimistic about Raleigh, but what are, what are some areas that we you think we need to just keep an eye on? Or, or what are some things that we could do to further increase opportunities for our creative community? I think, uh, you know, one of the, the big things, and I was, you know, lucky to kind of set my roots in Raleigh back when it was really affordable. Um, I think there's more... Uh, you know, the city and county and, um, you know, just we as a community can do to encourage um, affordable housing because a lot of these really creative young folks are getting priced out of being able to live and work and, and play in, you know, uh, the downtown core. Yeah. So I think there I've heard of some, some projects where they're going to be smaller um smaller spaces for housing that's going to be more affordable. I'm, I'm doing air quotes there. Yeah, um, it's relative. Anything that the, the, the city can do to help subsidize that um, and be proactive to keep uh, keep a young and vibrant um, life downtown would, would be a, a big first step. Yeah. As far as um, protecting places, I think there's you know, a few things that Raleigh's lost over the years, you know, some iconic um, kind of institutions that um, we just need to be careful that we don't, you know, wipe everything clean in the, in the name of progress. You know, thank goodness PRs is still there. <laughs> that's that's one of the things. And I, I don't know if I've I don't know if I've shared it with you. I, I don't think I've shared it on the, the podcast before, but one of one of my um crazy ideas and this this may get into the the hundred million dollar challenge question that i've got coming up next but um one of my thoughts is i would love to see i would love 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 to see and i don't know if this is possible i don't know if it's feasible i don't know if it's frankly legal but i would love to see i don't think it's illegal but i don't i don't know how it would work but i would love to see a fund for lack of a better word and i don't know if this is a tax base you know we raise a fund but um where the the members of the community if you know, call it a, a building that people like or a place, right? I, I won't, I don't like to name specifics, but I'm sure you could imagine a place that you, and you just mentioned one, but that if, if, if it was lost, you would, you would be heartbroken. Um, you know, what if we had a fund at, as a community at our resource that, that if a change was happening, we could all just like pitch in and vote and say like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna preserve that place. We're gonna keep it as is. Um, and basically turn it into like a, so in a essence, public institution. So the community gets a vote, like first right of refusal or something. But yeah, and, like and not and not just that, but has has the resources to back it up, and yeah. and put put in because I think that's in, in 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 the society that we're in. That's and just the world that we're in. And this is America. You know, at 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 some point, somebody may want to sell their building or sell their mm-hmm. um space or you know whatever and 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 it's one thing to say hey we want to keep it around it's another to be able to have some some capital to put behind that and so i, I think it'd be really cool uh, again, I, don't know, I don't know if anybody else <laughs> does this but like again and, and we don't need to, to talk about specifics but like there are, there are places that and you hear it all the time in the news like, i can't believe that's you know being sold or i can't it's like okay well then let's let's yeah. step up as a community and um Let's do something about it, and I think it works. If yeah, you, some, if you sometimes can... I think the historic preservation is, is too too focused on the the far history. You know, yeah. anything you know, hundred, two hundred years old, you know, is obvious historic. But you know, that's that there's that near near history, thirty, yeah. forty, 
50 years old that is still, you know, um, needs a, a chance to be historic one day. Right. Well, and, and, and I, th- and, but I also struggle with the idea to say, like, I mean, let, let's just say you had bought an, an old warehouse 30 years ago when you first moved here. And, you know, now you're saying, well, I'd, I'd like to sell it and move to, I don't know, somewhere else. I struggle with the idea of saying, well, you can't sell that, Chris, because you created this really cool thing. You created this really cool artist space that we tell you that you can't do anything with it, right? I struggle with that. It's yeah. just a, that would that if someone it's was telling me that, American, right? right? I, would, I would have a hard time with that, and I would have a hard time with a straight face saying that to you, right? Just because you created this cool thing thirty years ago, well, now you're you know stuck. You can't do anything with it. But it's a very different yeah. conversation to say, "Hey, Chris, I understand that you want to sell, and I understand that you know somebody may offer you money, but there there's a first right of refusal community aspect. But again, it's not a it's not a discount. It's market rate. We say, "Hey, we're going to pitch in." And we're gonna we're gonna buy it and keep it as you know Alexander Studios, so that yeah. artists for the next thirty or three hundred years have the same resources and availability and access and opportunity that you had, and that the people who who were in community around you, you know, were lucky enough to be a part of that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this hi- hypothetical Alexander Studios had. I, I, I think it'd be really cool. Again, I don't, I'm, I'm putting it out there because I don't know if anybody knows how to pull that off, but I think it'd be pretty fun. Uh, and, and again, could have, could have real impact. So um, very cool. Well, with that, and I, and I alluded to it uh, a few minutes ago, but this, this $100 million question, and this is something I'm, I told you beforehand, we're, we're kind of workshopping here on, on, the, on the show, but if, if you had, and again, it doesn't have to be $100 million, but, but a, a, uh, a, intriguingly large sum of money, however you define that, to invest in community or your community or your region. And again, we talked about kind of however you define community. Um, what is something that, again, if you could flip a switch and, and make a substantial investment uh, in places or spaces or community, what, what do you think, what, what, what's something that comes to mind? Mm, well, one of the things that, you know, that I, I love about Raleigh is... Um, what it what it's known for the city of oaks um uh, i love all the the green spaces that we have in pockets around the city and so i think yeah you you gave me this question beforehand so i did think about it a bit um i think i would invest in uh some kind of tree planting program um to kind of keep raleigh's canopy thriving um i think it's one of the unique things about our city yeah um so many and there's plenty of studies showing how important and valuable um, it you know it, it is to have a, a a nice strong thriving tree canopy for you know keeping down the heat um, just for people's mental health mm-hmm. you know seeing green everywhere so I think that's that's an easy easy answer for me it's something everyone would would be able to uh, benefit from yeah i like it i, I think a, i think a hundred million dollar tree fund i don't know i'm sure somebody knows how far that would go how many trees you can plant of what size but yeah i mean i think and, and to your point the there's a there's a maybe it's a stretch to call it a network benefit but um there's an enduring and a widespread benefit to trees and it's not just I mean, there's direct, there's first order benefits, second order, but it, it just goes on and on and on. So yeah, yeah. I think it's a fantastic answer. Um, so with that, the, the second to last question is, is going to be just kind of, is there anything on your mind that, that we didn't get a chance to talk about that we wish you had, or do you think we covered it all? Oh, uh, you know, just, uh, 
you know, we, we touched on the, the capital campaign. Um, keep your eyes and ears out for more information on that. If uh, you want to support uh, Marvels and, and its future, um, creating more space, um, you know, you know, go to our website. Um, there will be links there to how you can you can give and, and contribute and support um, Marvels. Uh, yeah, in the next 10 years. So we're excited about it. That's that's perfect, and I will, I will absolutely include links. And so, with that, any any final uh, I call this the call to action question. Any anything you would wish that the audience would go read, see, do uh, anything at all? Any call to action? Oh, go out and enjoy one of the many fabulous parks here in Raleigh. Uh, I like to, and uh, think everyone should do it. What what's one Thanks, of your favorite Jeff. parks? Oh, I, I I love Dick's Park already. Yeah. You know, I go, love going there. Um, and just even in its raw form, I can't I can't wait to see what it's it's going to be in the next ten years. So that's, I, I think that's really exciting for Raleigh. I, I will I will double triple stamp that we we went out and had a uh, a rather impromptu picnic. Not well, that's a stretch. We picked up some food, took it into the park, yeah. and sat down at a table <laughs> and overlooking the city. up some some acorns. And <laughs> no, no, right, we were, we weren't foraging. Chopped down. This, this was actually. <laughs> Uh, app timing i think it was it was poolside pie um grabbed a pizza and, uh, and went up to uh went up to the park and, and sat sat by flower cottage at a picnic table and just i mean right fantastic we had fantastic we had lucky weather day we had uh beautiful beautiful skies and a great view of, of downtown raleigh and so yeah can't can't agree more there's there's a lot happening there and uh, a lot more yeah. a lot more to come so that's a good point. Go, everyone, go get your poolside pie before you can anymore. That's right. It's bittersweet. I know she's gonna whatever Ashley does in that space is gonna be amazing. Um, but uh, I'm gonna miss my poolside pie too. That's right. Uh, I agree. Agreed. So cool, Chris. With that, thank you for your time. This has been fantastic. Uh, appreciate all the work you do at Marbles, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us here today. All right. Thank you, Jed. Take care. <laughs>